Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Mental Models podcast. We would like you to continue to support us and uh, our efforts here and show us that uh, you do appreciate uh, the information that we share. Uh, And you can do so by buying our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. It's available on Amazon, and and if you do buy it, uh, what would really help us out is if you could leave a review. It's available in paperback copy and on Kindle. Both are pretty good value, and we think that uh, you can really explore some of the topics that we touch on here in greater depth. Thank you very much, and we hope you continue to enjoy the Mental Models Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Mental Models Podcast. Yes, yeah, so today, uh, again, we're recording this in uh, Dan's garage, uh, still trying to be observant of social distancing, but as a consequence, there's a bit of a rainstorm going on outside. and You might have a little bit of ambient uh, rain and maybe a thunderstorm. It'd be kind of like one of those relaxation uh, tapes that help you fall asleep. Hopefully, we won't induce sleep with our conversation. Yeah, and the today. mood of the conversation may be reflected in the weather. We'll have a little bit of a soundtrack going behind us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what has happened in the market during uh, the COVID crisis and uh, where we've come from, where we are now, and where perhaps we are going. Yeah, and perhaps emphasizing the, the gap that exists between markets and the actual economy, sort of the Main Street versus Wall Street gap. And this was uh, the subject of a nice article in The Economist in, uh, in the May 9th issue, uh, just recapping the huge sell-off and panic that ensued in in uh, the early days of the COVID nineteen hitting the world, and then a, a huge rally, all all in the course of about eight weeks with just radical volatility. Yes, and in this case, it was uh, the type of volatility you typically like to see going up, uh, and it has been almost as violent on the upside as it had been uh, going down uh, initially. So. What happened? And, you know, is it that the economy is completely turned around? Coming into this, the economy was pretty strong. It was there was not a lot of signs of weakness. There were some issues associated with the industrial economy uh, surrounding oil. But for the most part, everything was humming along relatively well. But then, uh, of course, the government response uh, to the COVID crisis was to shut everything down. Travel, of course, was affected. Any any sort of leisure, restaurants, uh, anything associated with sports or uh, communal events, uh, and of course, non-essential businesses. Everybody shut. We willingly induced a recession uh, in the U.S. economy at, with an unemployment rate that has been unrivaled in the history of the country. Right. And that also was accompanied by this uh, sense of panic that a lot of people had, which uh, is characteristic of a response when something unknown occurs, things are under threat, and what do you do right away? Um, So what's interesting from a psychological standpoint is going from this uh, very 
fear and stress uh, point in time to actually uh, some optimism, right? And, and participation in markets going up and just huge bouncing around of, of what the state of the world is. So at the end of March, uh, we had a trifecta of uh, events that were coming together to spur the rally. Uh, one being that the Fed basically came in and said that they would do whatever it takes. Uh, two was uh, the uh, government having a series of stimulus plans. Uh, the third of which was the CARES Act, which was a multi-trillion dollar plan uh, to provide a bridge for uh, the economic devastation caused by the lockdown to hopefully get us to the other side when we opened up. So very short-term oriented solutions. Right. And then, in, and then finally, that you had a mechanical issue with pension rebalancing, where there was uh, several hundred billion dollars that would come into the market uh, to uh, basically rebalance between the performance of bonds and equities for a lot of pension plans. And so all three of these things come together at the same time. Uh, and then a th- there was a fourth element that did not become apparent until really late April, early May, and that was the participation of retail investors, which has uh, actually continued, and it's been a very interesting phenomena. So uh, if you there was an article in the FT earlier this week uh, about retail investors, and I think there's another one that is in uh, Barron's this weekend uh, about how retail investors have really joined in uh, participating in the stock market. If you think about the experience that we've all had for the last 10 years, it was to buy the dips because you got paid. Well, we had a very big dip. And if you think about everybody sitting at home receiving checks from the government, uh, there was a very easy place for that to go. And a lot of people uh, signed up for Robinhood accounts, which now allow you to buy stocks without paying any commission. Accompanied by an absence of other places to put the money. That's right. So if you're a sports better, for instance, there was uh, there were no sporting events for you to bet on. If you like to go to the casino and to gamble, the casinos were shut. So given the limited outlets for people's propensity to take risk, uh, the fact that uh, they had they were enabled to be able to do that because a lot of people will, are basically sitting at home uh, and you know the stock market is something that's continuously going. And the fact that it started to rally, and the historical experience of people, if I just bought during the financial crisis, I could have tripled my money. All of these things together, I think, uh, created a backdrop. And the Fed, of course, is printing uh, aggressively, created this backdrop uh, for risk taking. Yeah. And with risk taking, you often have kind of the, the stereotype as somebody being impulsive and found money just seems to be uh, something that encourages risk taking. You know, if, if, if there's, you know, ever a time where you're going to, you're going to sort of take an unfettered risk. If you don't feel like the money was ever really yours to begin with, you're more likely to. So that's sometimes the case with stimulus checks. Um, It's tempting to want to just blow them on something. Right. And there's a bit of benchmarking that goes on mentally. People didn't have the money before. I've had individual investors or individual uh, uh, people that are not that are not finance people tell me this logic that 
okay, so I got this money from the government. I'm going to put it into the stock market. If I lose it, I didn't lose anything because I didn't have the money before. Yeah, it's psychologically different. We always talk about loss aversion and this this protectionism of money you feel you've earned. Uh, when a stimulus check is cut, it somehow doesn't feel like it was your money and losing it doesn't hurt so bad. Now that we get to the point where the stimulus checks have pretty much been received by and they're out there. Now, there's a self-reinforcing uh, effect associated with prices going up and that there's a fear of missing out. Your neighbor ends up t- bragging to you about, uh, now hopefully they're social distancing while they're doing it, but they brag to you about how they made 20 or 30% investing the money. You can still brag while social distancing. You just have to do it louder. Yes, yes. Well, it's any, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, character who ironically was associated with a company called Bar, Barstool Sports. His name is Dave Portnoy, and he's become a, a regular on CNBC. And what he does is he he's had he I think he made a hundred million dollars selling his interest in uh, Barstool Sports, and he has a continuous feed that he puts up on Twitter of him investing in airline stocks. And in cruise lines, and he does it with a lot of profanity, absolutely no knowledge of what he's doing whatsoever. So now it's barstool investing. Right. And he's got over like 2 million followers now. Uh, so uh, he's just very outrageous and he's amusing. It's it's kind of fun to watch the tomfoolery associated with it. I, I can't believe I just said tomfoolery, but <laughs> I did. Uh, We're a little less outrageous on the mental models. Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure I just improved our listenership uh, by using such, such terminology. <laughs> those are harsh words. Yeah, those are harsh yes. words. Anyway, it's indicative of the times. So the retail investor is a very powerful force that has not been present. There was a ton of loss aversion. Retail investors disappeared after the financial crisis. But over time, as the market has done nothing but go up, you create this moral hazard where people perceive that they can't lose because the Fed's going to have their back. The Fed's going to step in and print money and prices go up. And it's been encouraged. I mean, I hate to say it by people like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett comes up and says, oh, you should never bet against America. If enough people take that to heart and they invest without knowing what it is that they're buying, ultimately things can be too expensive. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a confluence of different factors. The um, the lack of loss aversion, just this recent history of things going well. You know, they sort of they just add up to more um, willingness to take risks. And this is against a backdrop right now. Yes, we have seen the the curve flatten, and there is some justification for more optimism that perhaps will avoid a great depression. The Fed will not let that happen. And I can talk a little bit about what the difference is between the Great Depression and uh, the conditions now are. And the Great Depression, one of the problems is, is we had money that was pegged to a gold standard. When people needed money to pay debts, uh, there was only so much in circulation. And the Fed actually raised interest rates initially in response to uh, the Great Depression, which made money even scarcer. Here, we have a Fed that is willing to accommodate to be the lender of last resort to step in and provide support to businesses. So it's very unlikely that you're going to have uh, an outcome like that, despite the fact that we have an unemployment rate that's very likely well over 20% today. 
Right. So unemployment was at 14%. People were very concerned a couple of weeks ago, and it's being speculated that it will remain north of 20%. So uh, that is a really striking difference. And it it has to feed into people's psychology, knowing that um, it feels like they have someone watching their back at all times. And it's just it it reduces the edge on a lot of the risk people are taking. Uh, Howard Marks gave a uh, talk on Bloomberg earlier this week that was really insightful that basically uh, the Fed has stepped in and you know printed trillions of dollars to support asset prices. They're actually going out and buying bond ETFs, which ultimately ends up in the stock market. If you think about it, if you're holding a treasury or a mortgage-backed security or a bond, you know, a junk bond or whatever, and the Fed buys that, well, then you have money and you're going to likely put it into another asset. So ultimately, assets as an entire class, you know, you have you can think of them as just kind of a, a uh, one one item. And then you have money on the other hand. And if there's money, more money that goes into assets, assets go up collectively and ultimately they find their way into other assets. So if I sell my bond, my treasury bond, perhaps I'll buy a corporate bond to replace it. And whoever I buy that corporate bond from, perhaps they'll buy a junk bond to replace the corporate bond. And whoever sells that junk bond, perhaps they'll sell the junk bond and buy some equity, right? So you can have a ripple effect that moves through the markets as the Fed prints money. But it's kind of like how Howard Marks described it, which I think is apt. Uh, There's a certain place where the market has equilibrium, where you have buyers and sellers and they're willing to meet at a certain price. We'll say for the S&P 500 that that is 2,500. We'll just use that as as a point. The Fed turns on the spigot and they've put more money into the market, and it drives the market up to 3000 Well, the rational buyers may look at that and say, well, 3000 is not really where I want to buy. And you may draw in those who think, oh, well, I think the Fed's going to continue to run the spigot. Therefore, I'm going to buy because it'll continue to push the market up. That works until the Fed turns the spigot off or until more assets come into the market to absorb the excess liquidity. We're seeing some of that now. There have been massive inflows of new equity issuances, secondaries, convertible preferreds, convertible debt, and new debt issuances that are coming to market to take advantage of the bid that's being backed by retail investors and the Fed. So that seems like a bet that the spigot will remain on. And I wonder to what degree would it be turned off, just especially given the election year uh, cycle? It's pretty unlikely that you'll see it turned off. But we've got to remember that all of these stimulus programs that have been enacted, they have to be funded. And right now, the Treasury is coming to market selling bonds, right, To because they have to pay for these now – Bond prices for them, you know, interest rates are exceptionally low. And so arguably they should sell as many as they can get away with. Uh, And the Fed has put extra liquidity in the market to be absorbed that. But the question is, how much comes to market in terms of demand from uh, the Treasury? 
and how much is the Fed printing and is at what at what rate? Now, right now, the Fed has kind of front run the Treasury because they were out in the market buying assets for about a month and a half before the Treasury actually started issuing in mass, which they should do from now and until the middle of June just to pay for what we've already put out. But it also seems like there could be quite good opportunities, and that might drive market participation as well, just given if you think about uh, some of the uh, the nature of business changing uh, just radically, um, you know, Amazon shipping, and just the, there are going to be businesses that thrive in this unusual environment, as well as those that, that will go away. Absolutely. So I think one thing that we can look at is uh, the changes that have occurred have acted as an accelerant, uh, that there's a digitization of business that has actually increased. And we can see that with the NASDAQ. NASDAQ's actually up for the year. And the argument there is if you didn't have the ability to operate your business virtually and you, it was a business that was capable of virtual uh, operation where you have your various uh, employees in remote locations, that was accelerated significantly. And you can see that in the growth of Microsoft Teams, uh, Slack, all of these, you know, Dropbox, all of these various software programs that allow people to work from home. And some of that will remain. Absolutely. And I think a lot of society is learning that they can do a lot of things remotely that had previously been done in an expensive way in an office setting. And so there's reason to think that some of those will remain robust and even increase in value over time. Sure. But on the other end of that, think about office real estate. So the need for office real estate probably becomes diminished. And it's felt like it already was moving that direction. It's an interesting way to put it. That's it's an accelerant, and we've talked about this in other episodes as well. That a lot of the responses that we're seeing to the pandemic are to accentuate things that were already kind of occurring or or were trends uh, in advance of this. Right. Certainly for oil and gas, it'll be interesting to see how that is affected. Previously, my thought was well, fewer people commuting because they're working from home. Uh, and certainly less uh, use of airlines. You don't need to go and visit people directly. You can do it uh, with Zoom or through a video conference, uh, which would cut down significantly on air travel, which would reduce the demand for jet fuel. But the other end of it now is people have been cooped up for several months, and a lot of people are considering a road trip uh, to go camping or uh, you know, take advantage of uh, getting out on the road and uh, leaving the place that they've been cooped up in for a long period of time. So there will be puts and takes uh, for oil and gas. My suspicion, though, when we look at the balance, that uh, this will be very negative for, for oil and gas. It seems like potentially there could be some other big changes in the future, likely more drama to come. Uh, so we'll just keep an eye on things. We will. But also remember, all of these retail investors, uh, a good portion of them will get jobs. They will or they will go back to work. That's true, uh, too. Which yeah. means that they're not going and the sports will open up. Right. So eventually we'll see athletics again. What will happen to those retail investors and the money that they put into the market when they have to go back to work? Yeah, betting on sports has a much more rapid outcome and probably gets the dopamine 
system flowing a little faster. So that likely would resume. And there's talk of uh, crowd-free sports occurring, which will be a unprecedented phenomenon. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what that looks like. Yeah, we'll update this these thoughts uh, as things develop. But uh, right now, uh, it looks like we may be at kind of a crossroads. Uh, if the market does break out from here, then we may be starting to talk about things like, you know, inflation and uh, a lack of the value of fiat currency. Yeah, so we uh, cover macroeconomic features from time to time on this program, and we'll likely have to do so continually with updating to the new circumstances. From a psychological standpoint, I think what we can say uh, from a, you know, from a, from a bias issue is that a lot of the retail participation is based on a having money that they found that they didn't have. So psychologically they can benchmark, uh, and then B having past experience where there's been a continuous reward placed for putting your money in equities for the last 10 years and people drawing an analogy between the financial crisis and the COVID crisis as being this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to buy stocks on the cheap and get a quick return. Absolutely. We, we always draw an analogy to previous times. The challenge with these analogies is that um, a lot of those structural factors that drive the future occurrences, just you have to look for differences, You know those key differences where you're not assuming it's the same phenomenon with different driving factors occurring in a different economy and different circumstances and time frame. All right. Well, that's great. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-star book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.